I'm going to read uh, the, the, the Scripture text here, uh, but I'm not going to read the whole chapter. If you open up to Genesis chapter 24, you'll see why. Genesis chapter 24 is the longest chapter in the book of Genesis. Longest chapter in the book of Genesis. 67 verses. In fact, this is the longest recorded single event in the entire book other than the flood. So last Sunday, if you were here, that was our shortest sermon ever at Veritas. And this week, well, you want to use the restroom now because it may... It may be a while. Uh, this was, in fact, the longest sermon that I could remember giving. A lot of material to cover today. A lot of material. So if you need to use the restroom or get a drink or a, a pillow or something like that, you probably want to take care of it now. Let me just read verses 62 through 67. Okay, just verses 62 through 67. Because we're going to work through it all, a verse at a time. So it's not necessary to read everything right now. So let me read these verses, and then I'll give a bit of introduction to what we're going to be talking about today, and then I'll pray. Now Isaac had returned from Beer Lahai Roy and was dwelling in the Negev, and Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening, and he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming, and Rebekah lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, who is that man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, It is my master. So she took her veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. And then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. So today we've got a love story, love story between Isaac and Rebekah, maybe the most famous love story in the entire Bible. And we're going to read how this couple came together, what God did to, to bring this man and this woman together, what took place in order for them to become husband and wife. And so if you are uh, single, this has a lot of uh, immediate application. So if you are a uh, single, like, uh, single guy like, Abe, uh, like Isaac or you are a, a single gal like Rebecca or if you have friends or, or family or children who, who are looking or will be looking at some point, hoping for a husband or a wife, there is a ton to learn in this passage. There is perhaps more to learn in this one chapter of your Bible than any other place in your Bible in regards to this relationship that exists before a man and a woman become a husband and a wife. It's very applicable to us, very applicable to our culture. There's over 95 million single people in the United States right now. Okay, a lot of people who are single. Some of them, fine, content, no interest in being married. Many would like to be married and simply are not. Over 95 million. I don't know if you knew this, but two weeks ago was National Singles Month. We, we have days for everything, right? And weeks for everything. So two weeks ago, in God's province, we just missed it by one week. I thought, how cool would that have been to preach following National Singles Week? Because I'm sure you all observed it. We have a lot of people looking for significant others, which makes it really big 
uh, business today as well. The online dating industry generates $1.8 billion per year. Online dating. The revenue is over $1.8 billion per year. Uh, eHarmony. I don't know if you've heard of this. There's a site out there called eHarmony that boasts that 236 of their members marry every day. eHarmony boasts, true, 236 of their members get married every day. So that website is eHarmony.com. In Seattle, there's a club called 4M multi-millionaire matchmaking that is committed to finding wives for millionaires. So multi-millionaires can have their profile put on this site by paying between ten and $30,000. And if you're a gal who's interested, you can pay $250 and your profile can be put on this website. That is 4mmc.com. <laughs> I do that just to see who actually writes. <laughs> so I saw you. We need to talk over here. Uh, if you are, so I know there's, there's Christians here today and there's, there's, there's those of you who are not Christians. I wouldn't presume that all of you are, are Christians. But if you are a, a Christian today, let me say something to Christians and then those of you who are not. If you're a Christian today and you're wanting to understand or, or grow in your understanding of, of manhood and womanhood and marriage and relationships and, and romance and dating. The world, Christians, the world should not be your encyclopedia. Okay, the world should not be your encyclopedia. You don't want to look to media. You don't want to look to what's portrayed in movies, what's portrayed in television, which typically is reflective of what is popular opinion today. That is not where you want to turn. So the truth is, Christians, your only reliable source is Scripture. Your only reliable source is Scripture. So Christians need to believe sola scriptura, that the Scripture alone, that the Bible alone is my authority, that everything I need for life and godliness is to be found right here. We need to value God's Word that way. We need to believe that. Christian, you need to ask yourself, do I believe that God's word really is authoritative? Do I really believe it's from God to me? And then you need to ask yourself this. Do you really believe that the Bible speaks to all your concerns? Because Christians can have a tendency to have a very small category of things that they believe the Bible speaks to. And then when they have concerns that are outside of those categories, they put the Bible aside and then they start grabbing other things off the shelf and looking for help elsewhere. Friends, the truth is, is that within Scripture is everything we need to know for our life. Everything. Including foundations for pre-marriage, romantic, relationships, dating, whatever you want to call it. The principles, the foundation we need, it's all right here available to us in God's Word. And perhaps not in a more obvious and specific way than in Genesis chapter 24. An exciting chapter we we read today. For those of you who are not Christians, right? I know some of you are not Christians. You need to ask yourself when, when you're when you're trying to figure this out, and you're trying to figure out how to find a husband or how to find a wife or what marriage is or what relationships are. If you if you're trying to figure that out, you've got to decide what well you're going to draw from. Okay, you got to decide what well you're going to draw from. 
Okay. Do you want to drink from from the world in this regard? Do you want to drink from a glass that is filled with broken relationships and marriages? Okay, our track record as a culture when it comes to relationships is not good. Our track record when it comes to marriage and commitment and fidelity and love and devotion, our track record as a culture is not good. And the teaching and the the ways that come out of us as a culture that are portrayed, that are published, are ultimately not helpful. Or would you rather... Or would you rather drink God's water? Right? Would you rather go to and would you rather hear from the one who created you? Would you rather be uh, hearing from the one who made you, who designed you? Would you rather hear from the, the God who invented marriage? Okay, the God who invented marriage, the God who invented sex, the God who invented relationship, the God who invented romance. Would you rather hear from the world in that regard or would you rather hear from God? The one whose ideas these are. Because the truth is, is that as a as a culture, we have not exactly matured when it comes to relationships with the opposite sex. And I just ask you to look at results. In your own life and in the lives of those around you. It's not getting better, friends. It is, it is getting worse. So I would agree with one author, a writer, who said this. That, that, that basically, this is the, the bedrock for modern dating. So the way dating occurs today and the way relationships go between men and women who are not married. The foundation that that's built on as a culture. Okay, The bedrock is feminism, pornography, the sexual revolution, abortion, and no-fault divorce. Okay, the outworking of all of that, the outworking of all of that in relationships between men and women who are not married is how you get dating as it's typically done today. And today's text looks at this. So we're going we're gonna to see God's way and then we're going to bring in you know, a contrast of the world's way. Some of it may just be obvious. You know, you're going to hear God's way and say, wow, that's, that's different. That's crazy. Uh, that's, that's weird. You're going to see God's way um, and, and then we'll just bring it up. But this is how the world does these things. And I want you to see the contrast. I want you to see that not only is God's word true okay, and right, but it's helpful. Okay, it's helpful. This is, this is good for you. Okay, when you're following the Lord, two things happen. God's glory and your good. And those are never separated from each other. Okay, so what is good for you is the glory of God. And when God is being glorified, it is good for you. And this needs to be applied to every area in our life. And I'll tell you what, what we see in Genesis chapter 24 is not modern dating. It actually looks a lot more like courtship. So there, I said the word. 45% of you just shut down. (laughs) There are two things you're not supposed to talk about in church, hell and courtship. But we are going to look at courtship today. And I think you'll find that the biblical model is very different from what we're used to. For some of you, when you hear the word courtship, it may sound Victorian. It may sound antiquated. Some of you assume it involves long denim dresses, veils, horses, and adding a parlor to your home. These are not necessary to understand biblical courtship. That isn't the case. But what we see in Scripture is just very different from what we have today. So I'm going to pray, but before I pray, let's just throw words uh, out in this sense. The buzzwords, okay? So whatever you want to call it. uh, Dating, 
according, stalking, whatever that looks like, relationships between guys and gals before they're married, right? We've got lots of different things and words that come with all kinds of connotations, right? That's when I said the word courtship, a lot of you, like, one person left. You just shut down, like, I am not listening to this, this is ridiculous, so throw out the connotations. And let's just see what the Bible says, okay? Let's just see what the Bible says. I want a husband, or I want a wife, or there's all these relationships where there's closeness, there's intimacy, but they're not married. What does that look like outside the church, inside the church? What does the Bible have to say about that? I'll use the word dating. I'll use the word courtship. Whatever words we use, let's just agree. Let's just agree. Whether we agree or disagree at the end, let's agree that we're going to see what the Bible says. Like 20 principles that we're going to draw out, which is why we're going to be here till dinner. Not joking. I'm joking. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this day that you made. Thank you for bringing us here. Thank you for giving us your word. And thank you for giving us grace to to, to know you and to, to understand you. And I pray that you would help me to communicate well and to communicate with humility. And I pray that your, your word would prove uh, helpful. God, I pray that uh, there are people, I'm sure, here today who do not know you and do not love you. I pray through even preaching this that they, they come to know you, God. They come to know your ways and, and see and hear that your ways are good, that your ways are right, that your ways lead to your glory and they lead to our good. So we thank you, God, for this time. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you have a Bible, please open. Or if you want one and don't have one, there should be one in a seat in front of you. you get to Genesis chapter 24. We'll start with the first couple verses. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household who had charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh. Whoa, what's going on here? It is a good thing we have more verses because that sounds really strange. This is Abraham's most trusted servant. Okay, this is like Abraham's best friend. Right? Sarah's, Sarah's gone. Okay, this, is, this is Abraham's closest friend. It's the one whom Abraham... Abraham's a wealthy man. He's got a lot that he's responsible for. And this is the one that he puts in charge of everything. Okay, so he trusts this man completely. As you're going to see, this is, we, don't, we don't learn his name. Uh, he's a godly man. Okay, he's a godly man and he loves Abraham. And he loves Isaac. Okay, so he loves God. He loves Abraham. And, and he loves Isaac. And, and you know Abraham loves him because he asks him to put his hand under his thigh. Which is, we don't do this anymore. Okay, we need to clarify that. We don't do this anymore. But in biblical times, when, when two parties were coming together and they were making a pact. Okay, if they were making a very serious agreement, right? That, that sounds serious. When they were doing something, making an agreement with each other, um, to emphasize the uh, seriousness of it, they would, they would take hold of each other's inner thighs. Okay? Two, men would, two men would do this. You know a guy's serious when he, when he goes for that. We shake hands. Right? That's good. We shake hands. Let me say that again. We shake hands. We're not bringing. We're not going to bring this one back. Let's see what's going on here. Verse three and four. What's going on? That I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and God of the earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, 
but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. So there's a serious agreement between these two. Um, Abraham's taken his most trusted servant, and, and here is what he is asking him to do. He asks him to make a commitment to help him find uh, Isaac a wife. This is what he's asking him to do. Okay, my most trusted, my best friend. I need your help. I need your help to find Isaac a wife. Isaac's about 40 years old now. He needs a wife. And Abraham specifically says two things that I want to draw attention to here and a couple principles, right, that we're going to glean. These relationships as they exist before marriage. Two things to draw our attention to. Number one is, is Abraham uses the word wife. Okay, you see that word two times in verse three and four? Okay, what is he looking for? What is it he wants for Isaac? He wants him to find Isaac a wife. He does not ask him to find Isaac a girlfriend. Okay, this is going to be really important. He's not asking him to find a girlfriend. He does not say, go and find someone that my son can recreationally date. Go and find a woman that he can casually date. Go find him a friend with benefits. This is not what he asks his servant to do. He says, my son Isaac needs a wife. Okay, the principle we draw from this is that dating has a trajectory and it's marriage. Okay, your Bible knows nothing of recreational dating. Bible knows nothing of casual dating. Bible knows nothing of romantic relationships between men and women that are not married or are not moving toward marriage. Okay, dating is supposed to have a trajectory. You ask people, right, why are you why are you dating? You know, what's this about? And many times there's really no answer to that. Well, I don't I don't know, and geez, why are you asking me that? And we're just having a good time or we're just having fun. Well, the Bible doesn't know of that kind of a relationship. Okay, dating, courtship, whatever you want to call it, the goal is marriage or not marriage. That's the goal of this relationship between a man and a woman. Okay, they are moving with a trajectory, and that trajectory is supposed to be marriage. In the, in the Bible, when it comes to relationships between men and women, you are either brother and sister or husband and wife, and there's no other category. Right? There's no boyfriend and girlfriend. Right? No, and then David you know, hooked up with his girlfriend. That verse is not in the Bible. They are brother and sister or husband and wife. So the goal of dating is not to hold hands with and kiss your sister. It's to find a wife. It's to find a wife. If you're not married, so Christians, young man, young woman, you're spending time together, you're dating. She's not your wife. He's not your husband. You don't treat him like your wife. You don't treat him like your husband. Your brother and sister. So put that context on everything and anything you do with one another. Your brother and sister. And you're only, according to God, you're only brother and sister. Now, why does Isaac need why does Isaac need a wife? Well, Isaac needs a wife because he's a man and it's not good for him to be alone. Genesis two eighteen. It is not good for the man to be alone. Remember that verse? God creates everything, and everything is good. Of course it's good. God is creating it, right? So day one, God says, Good. Day two, good. Day three, good. Four, five, six, seven, good. He makes man very good. And then there's like this, uh uh-oh, in Scripture. And God says, but, I'm not done yet, because it is not good, first time you see that in your Bible, for the man to be, what? Alone. Single guy, not good. Not a good idea. Disaster waiting to happen. 
God said, it is not good for man to be alone. So what does God say? So I will make him a what? A girlfriend. Does not say that. I will make him a helper suitable. So here's the deal with Isaac. Abraham is sending out his servant to find Isaac a wife because Isaac is ready to be married. He's ready to be married. So this is important. Abraham does not send his servant out to find Isaac a wife when Isaac's playing video games and working part-time at Burger King. (laughs) He sends his servant out to find Isaac a wife because Isaac is ready. He's 40. not saying you have to wait until you're 40. (laughs) He's 40. He loves God. He loves his family. He's responsible. He has money. He has a good job. He is ready. What's the principle? Marriage is for men. Marriage is for men. Marriage is not for boys. Marriage is for men. Now, we live in a culture where adolescence just gets prolonged and prolonged and prolonged. And just because you're a male, we know this, that doesn't mean that you're a man. You're either a boy or you're a man. But we make it very easy in this world and in this culture to prolong boyhood. So I don't need to step up to the plate. I don't need to provide. I don't need to be responsible. And we've got a lot of boys. Just because you're 35, just because you're 40 years old, right? It doesn't make you a man according to Scripture's definition. It doesn't make you a man. So we've got lots of grown-up boys who, who aren't working hard, who aren't taking responsibility, who aren't laying their life down for anything, who aren't serving their church, who aren't loving the Lord, and therefore, they're boys in, in men's bodies. So if, a, if, a, if you're here and you're a young man and you want to be married, then, then step number one is not to find the right person. It's to be the right person. You need to become marryable. Right? You need to become marryable. Okay, that's why we show, you know, I've got four boys and a little girl, and we already, we, we, we were showing our boys this, and we're talking to our boys about this, and talking to them about the folly, right? The folly and the foolishness that it is to, to spend time with at this level and to date girls when they're not ready to be married. I say, well, what is the point, son? What is the purpose? God brings a man and a woman together so that they could be married. So is this 12-year-old boy, you know, that you're telling me about who says that this girl's that and this girl's that and he's going on a date and here's her boyfriend, here's her girlfriend. Does that make any sense? No, it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make sense, does it? Because, son, what's the goal? What's the goal? Is? Well, the goal, is to, the goal is to get married. Well, if you want to get married, then you need to be able to marry they need to get ready. So this means that young boys and young men need to be encouraged to become marriable. Are you ready to devote yourself? Are you ready to be selfless? Are you ready to love and to lead? Are you ready to protect? Are you ready to be providing? That's what a, a young man needs to be prepared for in order to be marriable. And so what does God do? So God, you know, I ask my boys, and I check them up with my boys all the time, you know, I say, hey, you know, we talk about girls. My oldest is 10. I say, any of the girls looking any different to you yet? <laughs> right? You guys all I see, they, you're validating what I say to them because you understand this. And like, no. Right? They're still like, no. They, they, you, if you look, they're making faces right now. They're like, no, it's gross. You know, I'm good. I got my guys. And I, and I keep telling them, well, at some, at some point, you watch. They're going to look very different to you. 
Very different. Right, hormones are going to start raging. Wow. And you're like, what? I'm trying to prepare them for that. So when are they going to come and say, Dad, I don't know what's going on, but I can't tell you. Know, I'm just I'm thinking these thoughts. And I'm looking. I'm seeing these girls. They're so pretty. And, and we're talking about what's God doing. Hey, what's God doing? Well, well, God is putting, He's building you this way, and He's putting desires in your heart, right? And, and for a while, there's going to be things that, and guys need to be told this, there's going to be things that you want that you cannot have. This is true for all of us, right? Deny yourself. There are going to be things that you, we all have things that you want that you don't get to have. You want them, but you can't have them. But what else is going on? Well, God is giving you this desire. God is building in you a sex drive, even as a young man. What for? To drive you to prepare yourself to marry. Not to go find a girl. That's not what that's for. It it is there so that when you do have a wife, you'll chase her and pursue her and love her and adore her and give her affection and devote yourself to her. And before you're married... It's there to motivate you to get yourself ready to have a wife so that you can be married and you can have the things that you want, have the things that you desire. So what needs to happen first? He needs to become marryable. Isaac, he's ready. Right? He's ready. He needs a wife. Men, you need a wife. Ladies, here you are. You need a husband. The next question is, where will you look? We get this from verse 3 and 4. Where will you look? Okay, men, where will you find her? This is really important. Where are you going to go to find a wife? Where are you going to go to find a husband? What does Abraham says? Go to my country. He clarifies, not from the daughters of the Canaanites. It means not at the club. Not at the club. Not at the gym. Okay, this is not where you... I just want to sweet... Godly gal to marry. Well, then you need to know where where to look. Ever since chapter 9, the the Canaanites have been accurately portrayed as a wicked people. They are. They're a wicked people. So what's Abraham's big concern? I want to find my son a wife. Okay? But I want her to be a godly woman. And so you need to be careful where you draw from. So he's going to send his servant all the way back to his country. The principle is this. Find a wife among God's people, Ben. Find a wife among God's people. Find a wife among God's people. Never. Here's the principle. I'll read two verses in 1 Corinthians 7 and chapter 6. Christian man or woman, never, ever, 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 ever get romantically involved with someone who is not a Christian. Amen. That's not just like the never, ever, ever get in romantically involved with someone who is not a Christian. If you're a Christian, what you're saying is that the most important thing to you is Jesus. Why would you ever get romantically involved with someone else who does not care about Jesus? If you're a Christian, that should mean that the center of your universe is Jesus. Why would you connect yourself with someone who does not have Jesus at the center of their universe? In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 39, Paul's talking to women who've lost their husband. He says, you're free to remarry, but only in the Lord. That means she's got to be a Christian. And you need to know that before. Right now, you, you've gone out three times, you've gone out four times, and you say, hey, 
I just thought of something. Are you a Christian? At that point, they're going to say, well, should I be? Well, yes, I only date Christians. And the guy will say, well, I am a Christian. Absolutely. Now, what kind of Christian? Born again? Born again. Born again. What do you need to know? I'll be that guy. Because that's not the priority now is staying with her or with him. This isn't something you should have to investigate. Is this person a Christian? Well, I don't know. I'm really not sure. You know, we've been together for a while now. It's been several months, and I'm still trying to figure that out. It should be obvious if Christ is the center of a person's universe. It should be very clear, obvious. Which is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 14, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness or what fellowship has light with darkness? So where do you find God's people? Where do you find God's people? It's pretty simple, right? At church. At church. Should, anyway. Should find God's people at church. Where are the Christians? Well, I'll tell you where the Christians should be. They should be in a church. The Bible also doesn't know anything of a Christian who's not a part of a church. So you need to be in a church. A Christian church. We've got to make all these qualifications. (laughs) A Christian church. Let's make another qualification. A healthy Christian church. A healthy Christian church. I'll come even more specific. Not totally necessary, but ideally your church. Ideally your church. Okay, one of the popular reasons today that people are involved in multiple churches. So who's involved? What, what demographic is involved in multi, is most likely to be involved in multiple churches? Do you know? Young, single men or women. And they're involved in, you know, so you have guys that are probably going to go to this church, I go to this church, I go to this church, I go to this church. Now, what's the said reason? Oh, well, I like the teaching over here, and they are really good classes over here, and I like the music over there. But the truth is, there's there's more women. So they're increasing their odds, is all that is. And be involved in this ministry, and go to this single group, and go over here, trying to find a godly woman. But the deal is, if you find a gal in your church and you're trying to figure out whether or not she's someone that you can marry versus finding a gal in another church trying to determine whether or not that she is someone you can marry. Just know this. If you're going outside of your own church, it's going to be a lot more work. It's going to be a lot more work. Much more difficult to discern. Okay, when a person is a part of your own church, let me just make a quick case for that. There, First of all, there's built-in accountability and authority. And we're going to talk more about that. There's built-in accountability and authority. You're both under the same authority. Same pastors. You both have the same accountability. You've got the same people who are around you. You don't have to bring two right spheres of accountability together and try to mesh them and make them work or find two authorities. One authority, one source of accountability. Plenty of context to get to know each other. Okay, If you're active in the same church, plenty of context to get to know each other. Lots of windows built into the relationship. We're pro-windows in the relationship. Usually when people get in a relationship, they tint all the windows. right? So no one can see in. This is my business. It's just me and her. 
and, and they isolate themselves. Well, if you're in the same church, one of the benefits is there's plenty of windows in the relationship as well. Theological unity, which is very important, will be primarily taken care of because you're under the same teaching. You've submitted to the same doctrinal statement. You've been listening to the same preaching. You've been reading the same books. You've been, been studying your Bible together. Okay, you're, There's already going to be theological unity built in place. It's a lot of work. A lot of work if you're not part of the same church. And by the way, one other thing to notice before we move on to verse 5. When, when Abraham sends his servant to go and find Isaac a wife, and he says, I want you to go to my country. So I want you to go to, to God's people. The journey that he sets him out on is 550 miles. That's a long... It reminds me of that song, I would walk 500 miles. I don't know. 550 miles. That's a 21-day journey on foot. Okay, the right gal is worth it. Right? The right gal is worth it. 550 miles he's going to set out. Verse 5. The, uh, the, the, the servant, the wingman, Isaac's wingman, he's got a concern here. The servant said to him, perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? So what he's saying is, if I do find a nice lady, I'm not sure, right? I'm not who in their right mind is going to come all the 550 miles back with me without ever meeting Isaac. I think it makes a lot more sense, he's saying, if I take Isaac with me. So can I take Isaac with me so she can at least meet him? And Abraham responds adamantly, no. No. Verses 6 through 8. Abraham said to him, See to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring I will give this land. He will send his angel before you and you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. Only you... He reiterates it again. You must not take my son back there. Okay, here's the principle. Faithfulness trumps pragmatism. Okay, pragmatism is, is how most of us operate and it's I just do what works. Okay, so I learn by experience. I try this. It doesn't work. This works. And many times what Christians end up doing is they put pragmatics over Scripture. And so I'm not going to do what God calls me to do because what God calls me to do is, is hard or it's painful, it's difficult. So I'm just going to do what I find works. Okay, in this case, faithfulness, rightfully so, faithfulness trumps pragmatism. In other words, what would work, this is the appeal he's making, right? What would work, what would really make sense is if Isaac goes with me. It would make much more sense for Isaac to go on this journey with the trusted servant. But Abraham's got a bigger concern. Right, his concern is keeping his son in the promised land. He knows that this is where we are to be. God has promised us this place. Okay, this is where my family is supposed to be. So lest he go back and be drawn back to my country and not come back with you, right? we're going to keep him here. And so what is Abraham doing? He's trusting God and he's doing things right. He's trusting God and he's doing things right. What does he say? He says, an angel of the Lord will go before you and bring this girl back. I know it doesn't make any sense. And who in their right mind is going to follow you back? But they will if an angel of the Lord goes before you and makes it happen. And I know to be faithful, I've got to keep Isaac here. And you need to go there to church and find him a wife. 
And so if he has to send an angel to secure this, I don't know how he's going to work it out, but my job is to be faithful. And many times, especially when it comes to contrasting modern dating with what the Bible calls us to do and how to behave in relationships before marriage, a lot of this may not make sense to you. And it certainly is not going to gel with what you have been taught by your culture. But you've got to decide, am I going to follow God or the world? Am I going to listen to God's word or am I going to listen to the world's word? And Abraham is interested in honoring God. Honor the Lord and God will make it happen. Or you play a part, obviously, in finding a spouse, but it is the Lord who does the work. All of you who have ended up, all of you men who have ended up with a sweet and godly wife, you know it's a miracle. God sent an angel of the Lord. He sent an angel of the Lord to blind her. (laughs) To blind her. He caused her to fall into a deep slumber so that she would... Good night. Right, you know this. It has been miraculous. Your job is to be faithful. Okay, not uh, men or women who desire a husband or wife. Your job is not to stress, not to worry, not to compromise, not to take matters into your own hands, not to force it, not to settle, but to be responsible and to trust. That is not easier, but that is best. It is not easier, but that is certainly, certainly best. So usually what happens, right? I've seen this happen before. Is you'll have a young Christian guy or a young Christian gal. And at 18, this is very, it's easier. At 18, yeah, I'm not going to compromise. I'm not going to take matters into my own hands. I'm not going to settle. And it's very different when you're 35. It's very different when you're 35 and you still have a strong desire to be married. And it's just not happening. The temptation is great to compromise. The temptation is great to take matters into your own hands. But Abraham's a good example. We should be faithful. Proverbs 3, 6. In all your ways, acknowledge Him and He will direct your path. Well, what's your job? To direct your path? No, He'll direct your path. But your job is to acknowledge Him, to worship Him, to love Him. So verse 9, hand to the thigh. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. So, so what's, what's going on here? See what's going on here at verse 9. Okay, they make this agreement, and, and what's happening is, and here, here's the, the principle, we'll, we'll pull a principle from this, those closest to Isaac are committed to helping him find a wife. Okay, so those who are closest to Isaac are committed to helping him find a wife. This is not how it works typically today. And most people aren't even interested in this. But in this case, it is those who are close to Isaac, they are committed to helping him find a wife. So Isaac and Rebekah, as we read on, Isaac and Rebekah each have their parents and their family and their church standing between them and beside them. They are not on their own. Their family, their church, their God is standing between them and standing beside them. They are not sent out to find each other on their own, which is typically how it goes today. They are not sent out on their own to find each other, especially, and you'll see this throughout Scripture, especially the gal. She is never sent out to find her husband. The man may be sent out, to find his wife. But she remains protected. 
We'll get more into that as we read on and we'll come back to this. But this is great and it's biblical. It's not an arranged marriage per se, um, so much as it is an arranged courtship or an overseen courtship. Uh, And we are for this. We are for this here. What this is, is this is dating with a lot of windows. This is dating with a lot of windows. Pride tells us that we don't need these things. I'm fine. I don't need the accountability. Uh, I've got the knowledge that I need. I've got the experience that I need. I know what I'm looking for. I know what's required of me. Just leave me alone. Um, I've heard people say, I feel like you're treating me like a child. Uh, we're adults. We're not children. And so what we do then is we run from authority and we run from accountability. And I would simply ask you this. How is that working? How is that working today? Is that going well? Are these relationships going well? Are they honoring the Lord? What is typical, friends, even in the church? Are the marriages going well? Are the marriages lasting? We need a new understanding. We need to discard the ways that have been born out of a cultural meltdown. And we need to adopt God's ways. And say, is there truth here? Is there wisdom here that is good for me? And there is. Verse 10. Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia to the city of Nahor. Ten camels. This is great. He is setting out to find a wife for Isaac. And what does he bring? He brings gifts and a lot of room for luggage. Ten camels. Ten camels for one girl. Right? This is a smart man. If he finds a wife, he knows. If he finds a wife, he's going to need ten camels to haul her stuff back. That's what it's going to take. We experience this in my home. My wife packs more than I do. She's a good packer, so I wouldn't want to discourage her packing skills. But but she packs more than than I do. When when we both pack for something, it's very different. Everything I have goes in a Ziploc bag, basically. Like everything. All my hygiene products are in one tube. Right? Five and one. You've seen that. It's it's wonderful. Men love this stuff. Girls don't have products like that. It's it's you know, it's body wash, it's shampoo, it's conditioner. I put it on my toothbrush, whatever. It takes care of everything. Now, if I'm going on a trip with my wife, though, I know. And if I'm packing the back of the truck, I need to leave a lot of room. I need to leave room for her, for her bags. Why? Because she, she uses more stuff than I do. Right? She'll say in the morning, I'm saying, hey, well, let's go. She'll say, well, I got to get looking cute. I got to get looking cute. She's taking care of herself. She's getting, getting herself looking pretty and beautiful before we go out. I love that about her. But, it, you know, there's some things that, that make that happen. Yeah, so you got to pack them up. So he sets out 10 camels. He doesn't just bring camels, though. He's a smart man. What else does he bring, men? He brings gifts. He hasn't even met her yet. And what is he bringing? He is bringing gifts. Brides get gifts. Before the wedding. We're going to see that here. At the wedding. After the wedding. There is not a, there is not a girl in this room who hates gifts. What does Jesus do for his bride? Gifts. Gifts. You're a Christian. You're a part of the church. It means you're the bride of Christ. And what has Jesus been giving you your, your whole life? He's been giving you gifts. And, and he's promising you at the end of your life the greatest gift. And he's holding it out for you and describing it and telling you about it. You know, and, and excited to give you that gift. He's going to present it to you. 
And now every day he blesses you and he gives you gifts. Why? Because brides get gifts. So he, he knows that. He knows that he's going to find the girl for Isaac. So he knows he's going to need gifts and camels. So take a note, guys. Gifts and camels. Get gifts and camels. Verse 11. And he made the camels. So he gets there. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening, the time when women go out to draw water. So, again, this goes back to you need to know where to look. You're going to find a godly woman. Okay, church is a, is a good start, but he's looking. What is he doing? He's looking for a godly, sweet woman. And so he knows where to look. He knows that in the, in the cool of the day, okay, what you're good, in this culture, what you're, what you're good, kind, servant-hearted women are doing is they are, on behalf of their families, they're, they're making the trip to the well when it's cool at night. And they're gathering up all the water that is going to be needed for the next day. So he says, that's where I'm going. So you picture, so here he is at this well, and there's, 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 all these, there's all these gals coming out, and then there's just presumably one guy watching them. Right? Good thing there's no mustache or hoodie. He'd get arrested. But he's watching them, and he's looking. He's looking to find the right woman, the godly woman. And then verse 12, what does he do? And he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, Please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master, Abraham. There's another principle he prays. He prays. If you would like to find a godly man or a godly woman, you should pray. This is probably the most important thing to do. If you have children and one day you hope they grow up and they find a godly man or a godly woman to marry, you should pray for them. You should pray for them now. Pray for their spouse now. That God would lead them, that God would direct them, that God would bless them in this way, that God would love them in this way. And then what does he pray specifically? He prays this, grant me success. So that's an active prayer. There's active prayers and there's passive prayers. There's asking God for help and asking God for a handout. Okay, asking God for a help is, is, I'm committed to doing this. So men, right, we're going to do something. And then we're asking God to, he's asking God to grant him success. He's not saying, bring, bring me a wife for Isaac. I'm just going to sit here and, and wait. And you part the waters and bring her to me. That'd be a passive prayer. Okay, that's let go, let God. He's not doing that. This is an active prayer. So he's, we're going to see this. He's got something that he's going to do. And he's doing his best. And he's taking responsibility but ultimately, he knows that this is up to the Lord. And so he asks God to help him. He asks him specifically, verse 13 and 14. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink. And who shall say, drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. Now there's two things there's two things to see here. Number one, he has a plan. Number one, he has a plan. Uh, he needs to find a wife. And so he knows that in order to find a wife, he's going to need to have a plan. His actions before here, uh, here and to follow evidence that this man has a plan and men you will need to have a plan 
if you want to be married, you will need to have a plan. What are you going to need to do? What are you going to need to say? Where are you going to need to go? What are you going to need to wear? You need to have a plan together. How are you going to find this girl? How are you going to pursue this girl? How are you going to marry this girl? This is really hard for a lot of men today. A lot of men today aren't thinking about plans. They're not thinking about the future. They're not thinking about what's around the corner. They're not setting goals. We need to have a plan. And this area is no exception. Now, ladies, when it comes to finding a husband, you do not need a plan per se. You don't need a plan. In the Bible, it is not your job to go out and find a husband. It's never your job to go out and find a husband. It's his job to find you. It's his job to find you. Okay, throughout Scripture, we see that men initiate and women respond. God builds men to initiate and to lead, and God builds women to respond. And so it's necessary for the man to have a plan. It's necessary for the man to initiate. It's necessary for the man to think through this. But the gal doesn't need a plan. Now, other men in the potential wife's life, they also need a plan. So the man needs a plan. He wants to find a wife. And then the fathers and brothers of the potential wives, they also need plans, right? Of how they're going to love her and how they're going to protect her. And we're going to see that with Bethuel and Laban uh, soon. So I've got a plan with my boys, training them up, Lord willing, to, so that they will be marriable and responsible and sacrifice and lay down their lives and loving a woman for the rest of their life and preparing them for that. And at some point, I'm going to tell them to go. Right? Go and find for yourself a wife. I'm going to help them with that. But go. Now, I'm never going to say to my little girl, I'm never going to say, we're never going to say, go and find a husband. Right? He will need to find her. And we have a plan in place for how that goes. And it involves firearms and duct tape. <laughs> and blocking escape routes and things like, things like this. So the men have a plan. Okay, the, the, the men have a plan. The men, it is imperative that they are going to initiate. So he's, he's got a plan. Proverbs 5, 6, talking about the adulterous woman whose life is a mess. And one of the reasons is she has no plans. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander and she does not know it. So men, you don't want your ways to wander. 15.22 in Proverbs, without counsel plans fail, but with many advisors they succeed. And Proverbs 21.31 says, the horse is made ready for the day of battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. So men, when you one day God brings you a wife, that is the victory that the Lord has brought. Okay? And he did that. But you need to get the horse made ready for battle. You need to be responsible. When the victory comes, the victory will come and you will thank the Lord and you will praise Him because the victory belongs to Him. But in the meantime, that doesn't mean you just sit back and just say, victory, victory, come bring victory. No, you get the horse made ready for battle. And we don't spiritualize not doing anything. There's all kinds of things that we can say to spiritualize not doing anything. Like, well, I'm just taking it one day at a time. That means I don't have a plan. I'm uh, just going to see what happens. That means I don't have a plan. Just waiting on the Lord. That means I don't have a plan. Or we say really see silly things like, I don't want us to, we need to slow down because I don't want us to get ahead of God. Have you heard that one? <laughs> I've heard that. That's funny. I'm pretty sure that's impossible. You are not, he is fast. 
you are never, ever going to get ahead of God. So men need a plan. So look at this man's plan. He's not looking uh, for some spectacular sign or a random sign, right? He asks God for a sign, but he doesn't say, oh, when I see her, you know, I, I pray that there'll be a shooting star above her head or she'll look back at me and I'll know that she's the one or the 49ers will win this afternoon after I have a conversation with her. And this will be a It is not disconnected like that. He's looking for a sign that will show her to be, that will, that will show her inner qualities. Okay, so Lord, if she does it, if I ask her for a drink and she not only gives me a drink, but she, she gives my camels a drink, then I'm going to know this is a gracious woman. This is a considerate woman. This is a servant-hearted woman. She is a jewel. She is a godly woman. Which brings us to the next point that we see in verse 13 and 14. And it answers the question for men and women, what are you looking for? And it should be more than Christian should be more than that's the the box they check when they vote. Yeah, I'm a Christian. What's he looking for? He's looking for inner qualities. He's looking for a godly woman. Are you looking for a godly man? Are you looking for a, a godly woman? What's important to us? I think the most the thing I hear the most is people are looking for compatibility. Compatibility. But if you're looking for compatibility, you you could take this from any married couple here. There is no such thing as compatibility. No one is compatible. No one, there is not a person on earth that is compatible with me. And no one is compatible with you. You are, I mean, you're weird. You are, you know this, you're messed up. You're sinful. You've got strange things that you do. You've got strange things that you think. You're not going to meet someone compatible. And if you do, you would not want to marry them. Right? <laughs> I think that's true. You would not want to marry them. I would not want to marry somebody like me. That would be awful. That would be awful. We are all sinners. Okay? We, by nature, hate God and love ourselves. That does not bring about compatibility. But are we looking for godliness? Okay, are we looking for holiness? Are we looking for theological unity? Are we looking for someone who understands God the way we understand God? Looking for a person who reads the Bible the way we read the Bible. That's going to create major problems, if not. Is there relational unity? Do we see manhood and womanhood the same way? And marriage and family and children the same way? That's going to be really important if we're going to end up married. Do we understand the gospel together? Do we understand the implications of the gospel? If he's a man, is he a hard-working man? Is he one that you know will protect you and one who will provide for you no matter what? Does she seem like the kind of gal who would submit to your leadership as head of your home, man? And who would respect you and honor you even when you don't make the best decisions? So he's trying to figure out a way to begin to see some of these inner qualities. And we learn that, that, man, you want a woman who will feed your camels. <laughs> that was the top of your list. You want a gal who will feed your camels. We've we got five camels in our home. You want a woman who will feed your camels. This is what I mean by that. 
do you know how much camels drink? I looked this up. Camels drink. What's he? What's his? His plan is okay. I'm going to find out a lot about this girl if he feeds me. And you're thinking, what's the so? So she feeds. She waters your camels. What's the big deal? Like I water a dog. You put a little bowl out and they lap it up. Why is that going to show you anything about this woman? Camels at a sitting drink at least twenty gallons of water. Twenty gallons of water a camel drinks at a sitting. He has ten. Camels. Ten ca- that is 200 gallons of water. Right, if we heard that this was his test for the woman, you all would look at him and say, you're, you're going to leave here alone. No woman in her right mind is going to do that. 200 gallons of water. She probably had a pail that she would lower down into the well and she'd be bringing up a gallon at a time. That's 200 trips back and forth. You think he's going to learn something about this gal? Verse 15 and 16. Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. Verse 16. The young woman was very attractive in appearance. Okay, attraction is important. Not everything but it's very important. A maiden whom no man had known, she went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. In the middle of his prayer, did you see that? In the middle of his prayer, he sees the one. It is arranged marriage at first sight. (laughs) He sees her and he knows this is a special, special gal. The way she carried herself, her countenance. And what, what's he doing? He's, he's going, check, 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 check. I think this might be. I think this might be the gal. So what does he do? Verse 17. Then the servant, what's the next word? I guess no one's reading their Bible. Ran. The servant ran to her. That's important. When you when you find the right gal, you should you should not walk. You should run. He ran to meet her and says. So he speaks. Also, this all needs to be a part of your plan. You need to go to her and you need to speak. That may sound silly, but guys really need to hear that. You're going to need to talk. That needs to be part of your plan. You're going to have to open your mouth and talk to her. Please give me a little water to drink from your jar. So he runs to her. I'm sure it wasn't in a desperate way. We wouldn't want to do that. But he runs to her and then he begins to talk to her. Okay, So a young man who's looking for a young woman, part of his plan, he needs to be prepared. He's going to need to talk with her. That doesn't inc- he cannot text her. That won't count. Right? He can't text her or email her or poke her on Facebook or uh, whatever. He cannot do these things. He's going to need to have a conversation. Talk to Everybody communicates today just digitally and electronically, right? Like we text. If it's really important, we'll Skype. But otherwise, it's all this electronic communication. But what does he do? There's something for us to see here. He goes and talks to her face to face. He does, does he put feelers out? Does he start going around to the other gals who are there and saying, hey, what can you tell me about her? And do you know if maybe she, if I asked her, would she be interested? And, and could you maybe ask her so that I don't, I don't want to embarrass myself? He doesn't put feelers out. He doesn't talk with her friends. He just runs to her and he has a conversation with her. In verse 18 through 20, 
She said, drink, my lord. That's a good start. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. And when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. She's passing the test. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water. And she drew for all his camels. This would take, we think, between four and five hours. Between four and five hours, she is invested and she's passing all of the tests. You, you know some things about this girl if she's willing to do this. She's considerate. She is kind. She's selfless. Enormous biceps. <laughs> I don't know if that's what you're looking for, but apparently he was. I mean, she's hauling up 200 gallons of water. She is fit. Verse 21, when the camels had finished drinking, right, like the next day now, when the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing half a shekel and two bracelets for her arms weighing ten gold shekels. Okay, so she's the one, so she gets jewelry. We still do this today. Okay, so she's the one, and so she gets jewelry. We learn in verse 47, it's actually a nose ring he gives her. So maybe we should bring that back. He gives her a nose ring weighing five grams. I don't know if that's a lot, but it weighs five grams of gold. And he just walks up and puts it in her nose. And he gives her two bracelets weighing a hundred grams. I don't know if that's a lot. It probably is. He knows that she's the one. Okay, check. Next step, jewelry. Jewelry. He's adorning her, right? He's giving her gifts. How did he come to the conclusion? Verse 21, the verse right before. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. So he's just, he's watching her. Okay, there is, there is godly gazing. I've tried to make this distinction. There is godly gazing and there is creepy gazing. At first, it sounds like he just gazed at her in silence, like that. This is a this is godly gazing. No hoodie, no mustache, no astro van, right? None of those things. <laughs> He's watching her, and so I've said this before, men, you need to watch ladies. Okay, now that <laughs> let me let me clarify what I mean by that. You need to do what this man is doing. This is godly gazing. In other words, you want to pay attention to the women that God brings around you who are in your church. You want to see how they interact with people. You want to see how they talk. You want to, you want to watch their conduct. You want to see how they respond to certain situations. You want to see how they serve their church. And you can learn a lot. You don't need to spend three, four, five dates, five months getting to know someone on that level and then breaking their heart. You can learn so much, so much. Just by watching someone, not in a creepy way, but in a godly way, you're looking for the inner qualities. Some of you heard me say this before. I can still, I can still remember going on a mission trip with my wife uh, to Panama before we were in any kind of a relationship. I already knew that there were many things I loved about her; was totally attracted to her. But I can still remember the feeling I had when I watched her interact with the little kids down in Panama. And I was done. Because there were inner qualities 
You know, her love for children. And she didn't have any children, obviously, but her love for children, her devotion to children, uh, the way she was gentle with them and compassionate toward them and emotional over them. It was huge. You could see that, see that radiating from your life. That's what, that's what the servant is doing. He's gazing at her in silence. He's watching. And he's just watching how she carries herself for five hours. Not a single complaint, no grumbling, and she just continues to serve him. Verse 23. And he said, Please tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. She added, We have plenty of both straw and fodder and room to spend the night. So she is also hospitable. Okay, and she welcomes him into her home. Now, verse 26. The man. So what's his reaction? He, he thinks he's found her. So the man bowed his head and worshipped the Lord and said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsman. Thank you, Jesus. And this is what, this is what a man should say when God brings him a godly woman. Right, we already talked about it. You know it's a miracle. You know it's a miracle. And if God brings a godly man or a godly woman into your life, you should thank God and you should never stop thanking God. Every single day. It should cause you to bow your head and thank the Lord that He has brought this person into your life. You want a relationship with the kind of person that you could see yourself being thankful for every day for the rest of your life. Verse 28. Let me read the next few verses then the young woman ran she's excited she ran and told her mother's household about these things rebecca had a brother whose name was laban laban ran out toward the man to the spring so here you go the 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 men in her life are going to get in between now what's going on here as soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms and heard the words of rebecca his sister thus the man spoke to me he went to the man did you see that so where did this jewelry come from? Yeah. Oh, this man at the well gave it to me. And he spoke to me. He said, who's this guy that's giving you jewelry and talking to you without first talking to me and your dad? That's what he's saying. So he runs out. He runs out to, uh, to, to meet the, the servant. He said, come on, oh, blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? For I prepared the house and a place for the camels. So the man came to the house and unharnessed the camels and gave straw and fodder to the camels. And there was water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. So here's what we're going to see. Bethuel is her dad. Okay, he's probably old. And so Laban is going to do most of the talking here. And Laban is her brother. And now they stand between Isaac and Rebekah. Okay, between the servant and Rebekah. Okay, so they know that there's interest now. And so now they are going to stand between. And, and if Isaac wants to get to Rebecca, he's going to have to go through who? He's going to have to go through her dad. And he's going to have to go through her brother. That's the way it was. And if possible, this is the way it should be. This is the way it should be. It can't always be this way. But this is the way it should be. This is what God intends, right? The man initiates. Okay, Genesis 2.24. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So the man should be, he should be going. Okay, he should be preparing. He should be finding, finding a wife. The man goes and he pursues. He takes all risk. 
Okay, and this is what we see happening here. But here's what needs to happen first. He must first deal plainly with other men who are charged to protect her by God. That's what must happen. So if a man is interested in a gal, he must first deal plainly with the men whom God has charged and put in place to protect this woman. And this is the model that we see over and over again in the Bible. Okay, sons marry and daughters are given to marry. Okay, men are not given. Sons are not given to marriage. Sons marry and the daughters, the daughters are given in marriage and they're given in marriage to the man that has convinced the father that he is suitable, that he's a good man, that he's a godly man, that he can take care of his girl, that he can love her well. And once the father is convinced of that, this is biblically how it works, once he's convinced of that, he may then give his daughter to the man to be married to. And the truth is, if this is possible, this works really well. Because it's typically not a young man or a young woman who really know what they need in a husband or a wife. It's much better to have godly parents who've been walking with Jesus for decades and who've been married for decades to help you sort out what you need in a godly husband or wife. And their counsel should be sought. It should be followed. And so these two men get themselves in between Isaac and Rebecca. It should still work this way today. It will work this way in our home with our little girl. Uh, If there's no dads, uh, then a godly mom. A godly mom can fill this void. But sometimes there's not a godly dad. Sometimes there's not a godly mom. What happens then? Well, then you... Is there other godly family? Is there godly brothers? Well, there's no godly brothers. This is so common today. Well, well, who's, who's next on the list? Whose responsibility? Godly church. Godly church. Godly brothers in the Lord. Godly pastors. Okay, so it's not like, well, sorry, you don't have a, you don't have a godly dad, so you're not going to have the, the protection. You should have that, but you're not going to have that. So good luck. Good luck, and we hope it goes well. No. Part of being a man is taking responsibility for things that may not uh, be yours. And so godly men should take responsibility. I said this before. I don't know if it's happened yet, and I know it's freaked some of our gals out, but if we ever got a young, lovely Christian lady who's a part of our church and some guy starts pursuing her and we don't know him from Adam, I would hope that a bunch of the guys from our church would go and, hey, buddy, we'd like to have a conversation. we take you out to lunch. Who are you and what are your intentions and why are you spending so much time with our sister? That is good and right. This is supposed to be illustrated in a wedding ceremony with the giving of the bride. The giving of the bride, sadly, is usually a joke in wedding ceremonies today. Because the truth is that dad is not in that moment giving his daughter. He gave her up a long time ago when he said, oh, well, she's independent and she can make her own choices. And who am I to tell her what to do? And who am I to help and protect? She's a grown woman. And so he gave her over. And he gave her over to go out in the world on her own and to find a man and for men to find her. And there was no protection. There was no getting between her and these men. Many of them abused her, were terrible to her, had their way with her, deceived her, manipulated her. And none of that should have happened if the godly father had done what he was supposed to do. And so the way that's supposed to work in a wedding is that is literally the moment when he is being handed over to, when she is being handed over to a new man. Who gives this woman to be married to this man? Okay, it basically used to be me. That's what the guy would say, me. 
you've heard her mother and I do. Right? Her mother and I do. So what does that mean has happened? That means that I approve. I approve. I think you're a godly man. And you're worthy to be married to my daughter. But you be careful with her. Because she was mine first. And then, and then what, what does he do? What he's supposed to do is then he takes her hand and he puts her hand in her fiance's hand. And then he goes and sits down. And what he has literally done is he has finally given her over. But up until that point, he has stood between the two of them. You've got to go through me. You've got to court me first. You've got to buy me chocolate and get me the flowers first. <laughs> and win me over. And then we'll see if you can talk to her. So if no godly father, then other men should assume this responsibility. Relationships, ideally, here's the point, should be initiated and carried out under the authority of Scripture and the counsel of family and church. That is biblical, regardless of how antiquated you think it is, that is biblical. Relationships, ideally, should be initiated and carried out under the authority of Scripture and the counsel of family and church. When does the father get asked here? Is it before the man proposes? No, this is before date number what? One. There's not even a date yet. We've backed so far off that in our culture that maybe, and it's usually a joke anyway, but maybe dad gets asked before the marriage, but he doesn't get asked if he can pursue the girl. This is before anything. Before anything. There's acknowledgement here of the father it's going through him, recognizing that he is responsible to protect her. So here's, here's how this works. Through this whole process, the gal is never unprotected. She is always protected. That's why men take the initiative. Men take all the risk. If anyone's heart's going to get broken, it's the guy. It's not hers. He puts his cards on the table, as we're going to see. And she is to be loved and cherished and protected. So we want windows in the relationship. Make sure the relationship does not become isolated as is so common today, right? Friends are sitting around saying, where's Mike? Where is he? I haven't seen him in weeks. Oh, he's in a relationship, right? He's in a relationship. You haven't seen him for weeks. And you find out when it's way down the road when there should be windows from the very beginning. And it should never be taken out of community. But typically it is. Verse 33, this is great. Then food was set before him to eat, but he said, I will not eat until I have said what I have to say. And he said, speak on. Okay, men, this is what gals want. This is what they will appreciate. I have learned this from my wife to be direct and to the point. She does not want you to be passive. She does not want you to beat around the bush. She does not want you to take five minutes to say something you could say in one minute. She wants you to be direct and to the point. And this is what he does. They give him food. He says, listen, before I eat, I just want to make my intentions clear. I'd like to just tell you all why I'm here. He is not wasting anyone's time. And men must do this. It looks something like this. 
This is what it could look like today, especially if there's not a godly father who, who's involved. Uh, a man approaches a young woman that he thinks is lovely and attractive and godly and, and thinks that he would like to marry her. And so he would like to get to know her a little better. I mean, let's call it what it is. That's what's going on. And that's the trajectory of dating and the only purpose of it. And so he goes up and says, listen, uh, you might want to say you don't say you've been watching her, but you might want to say, hey, you know, I've seen you around and, uh, you know, um, uh, y- y- you're, you're obviously beautiful and you seem like a godly woman. And uh, I'd be interested in, in, in spending some time with you, getting to know you a little better. Do I have a shot? That's what you say. Just real simple like that. If you're struggling with how to do that. Do I have a shot? And just lay it out there and put all the cards on the table. Okay, so that if anyone gets hurt here, it's you, it's not her. And then gals need to be told that you be direct right back. You be direct right back. You're not responsible for his mental breakdown. So if it happens, that is not your fault. But you need to be serious and you need to be direct because many of you gals, I know when he comes and asks you that, you know before the words come out of his mouth that he does not have a shot. He's just not, it's not it. You've seen him too. And it's not what you're looking for. So if you know that, just be direct. Don't string him along. Don't drag him along. You don't need to give him a shot. There's no problem with that. Just shoot him straight and just say, no. No. And he'll probably push it. Well, what do you, like, a little? And you need to be direct. Don't say something like, well, like one in a million. Those are your chances. Because if you tell him that, he will think he's that one in a million. So you're saying there's a chance. That's how he's going to respond to that. So you've got to just lay it out and say, no, never, not in a million years. Just let him him have it. Now, verse 34 through 48, not going to read it. All he's doing is he's telling Bethuel and Laban, he's describing what happened, where is he from, what's he here for, and, and it's everything that we read in verses 10 through 27. But verse 49, here he is direct again. He says, let me have it. Now then, if you are going to show steadfast love and faithfulness to my master, tell me. And if not, tell me. That I may turn to the right hand or to the left. He does not say... Uh, hey, I was wondering if maybe you would consider considering. Uh, you know what? Never mind. That is not. That's not the way to do this. He just says, "Listen, I think she's beautiful. I think she's godly. Okay, does my servant's son have a shot? Tell me now. Let me have it." Verse fifty. Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, The thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you bad or good. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go and let her be the wife of your master's son as the Lord has spoken. When Abraham's servant heard their words, he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord. Right? He's thanking God again. And the servant brought out jewelry of silver and of gold and garments and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave to her brother and to her mother costly ornaments. So this is probably a bride price. We don't have these anymore. I think we should bring them back. This is a bride price. That means that in this day, if you wanted to court and marry this woman, you needed to give a bunch of money to her family. Isn't that a sweet idea? You had to give a bunch of money to her family. And there were, there were two reasons. One reason was, um, should the man prove to be a schmuck and unlawfully divorce this woman, 
and, and send her off, then there are some reserves to get her back on her feet. She can be provided for and taken care of. The whole thing is protection here and provision. As well, it was a way for the man to prove that he was marryable. He could prove that he could... Well, how do I know? How do I know that you can provide for my wife? Well, here's $10,000. Let me write you a check. I can take care of her. I can provide her. I've been preparing for this. I'm committed to this. So he offers this. Verse 54. And and he and the men who were with him ate and drank and they spent the night there. And when they arose in the morning, he said, send me away to my master. Her brother and her mother said, let the young woman remain with us a while, at least 10 days after that she may go. But give us some time to say goodbye. Verse 56. Uh, But he said to them, do not delay me since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away that I may go to my master. They said, let us call the young woman and ask her. So to be clear, Okay, see, whatever ideas you might have of, of, of some sort of arranged marriage where uh, the, the gal's uh, opinion or desire is disregarded and her, um, her, her input doesn't matter, that's, that's not the case here. I mean, clearly she has been for this from the very beginning, from when she ran home in, uh, excited and explained to her dad and to her family everything that was, was taking place. But she is not told what to do. Okay, she's not told what to do, and her opinion is not is not disregarded. But here we see, but here we see that she is faithful. She's like her soon-to-be father-in-law, Abraham. They called Rebecca and said to her, "Will you go with this man?" And she said, "I will go." So they sent away Rebecca, their sister, and her nurse, and Abraham's servant and his men. And they blessed Rebecca and said to her, Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. Then Rebekah and her young women arose and rode on the camels and followed the man. Thus the servant took Rebekah and he went his way. She's like her soon-to-be father-in-law, Abraham, because whenever Abraham, right, he's shown us, whenever he knows that something is from the Lord, he's he's quick to act. She's in the same boat. She's a faithful, godly girl. She knows that God has made it clear through her family and through his providence and through this man that that this is from the Lord, and so she sees no need to waste time. Like Abraham who gets up early in the morning to sacrifice his son and who's, who's, who's immediate in his response to the Lord's direction, she's like her father-in-law. Godly. So she's faithful, and she sets out on her way. And these closing verses and, and two points to draw from them. Now Isaac had returned from Bir Lahoi Roy and was dwelling in the Negev. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening, and he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel. And she said to the servant, Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, It is my master. So she took her veil and she covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah's mother and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. What a scene. God also brings Rebekah to Isaac while he's in the middle of praying, just like he did with the servant. He's out meditating, praying, walking with the Lord, and he looks up, and here he sees the bride that that God has, has brought to him. A couple final questions. Number one. In this, in this love story that we've just, just read, 
one of the greatest love stories in your entire Bible. Okay. First question is, how much physical and emotional intimacy was there before this marriage? This is really important. I've seen so much pain and hurt and brokenness come from not applying this principle. Okay, before they are married, how much physical intimacy is there between Isaac and Rebecca? And the answer is zero. There is zero physical intimacy. There is zero emotional intimacy. And yet they're going to have a wonderful wonderful marriage it was not some necessary step that they needed to try one another out in a physically and emotionally intimate way in order to determine whether or not they could be married the truth was for them that must be true for men and women today who want to honor the lord is that these kinds of relationships they they must be physically and emotionally bridled they're probably restrained. It's probably even a stronger word we could use. I would like to use. They should be physically and emotionally bridled. The way it works in Scripture is that physical and emotional intimacy matches the level of commitment. And so if there isn't a level of commitment, then there should be no physical and emotional intimacy. And the truth is, until engagement, there really is no level of serious commitment. And even then, it's nothing compared to the level of commitment, the covenant commitment that will exist from their wedding day forward. And before that, there is very little commitment before God and before others. Nothing formal. And so the level of emotional intimacy and physical intimacy, it must match that so the goal must be for a, for a man and a woman who are determining whether or not they're going to be married. You want to determine whether or not marriage is the end without ending the relationship feeling like an emotional divorce. And this is what happens. So couples get together and they go way too far. They get way too far down roads of physical and emotional intimacy. And then they break up and hearts are broken. Lives are devastated. And some of you have felt that. You might as well have been divorced because you were acting like you were married. Okay, some of you are dating and you talk more than my wife and I talk. You're on the phone more than my wife and I are on the phone. You're texting more than my wife and I are on the phone. Deep, personal, intimate conversations with people you've just met. And what's happening is emotional intimacy. Far more for her than him, but for both. You don't have to work at men and women coming together. We're like magnets, right? But we don't pull apart like magnets. It's like super glue if it has to be pulled apart. And it hurts, and it's tears, and it's painful. And so it needs to be emotionally and physically bridled. Right? You know what the question is, especially young couples. Every young couple has walked into a youth pastor's office at least once and asked the question, um, we're wondering, how far is too far? <laughs> He's like, how, how close can I get to Syria without getting shot? Right? That's what that question is. How far is too far? That is too far. That question is too far. You've gone way too far if you're asking that question. Because your interest is no longer honoring God. It's how much can I get away with and, and not tick God off. 
That is the wrong question. Is that not the question of someone who wants to love and honor the Lord? Sexual expression is for marriage. And sexual expression has a trajectory. It has a destination. And it's the marriage bed. And so a couple who is a brother and sister in the Lord should not engage in any zero sexual expression if there's nowhere to go with it. Song of Solomon 2.7 says, Do not awaken this desire before it is time. When you're married, you have a marriage bed and there's a place for the physical intimacy to go. If you don't have a place for the physical intimacy to go, you're turning on engines that would be very difficult to turn off. It's like the marriage bed is the freeway. Well, don't even get on the on-ramp. Well, I don't want to get on the freeway. I just want to get on the on-ramp. Well, you can't do that you're gonna have you're gonna have traffic and people you're gonna get backed up and you're gonna get forced onto the freeway and you're gonna get in a wreck and this is what happens. It has a purpose. It has an it has a goal. It has an end, and it's not meant to be started, not to be fulfilled for another six months. And you know this. I mean, this room, I'm sure, is filled with people who've learned this lesson the hard way. You've learned this lesson the hard way. You've learned that God's Word is true. You've learned that God's Word is right. There are things you wish you could take back. There are things you wish you did not do. Emotional... And physical intimacy is the reward of a commitment. It is not the means of getting a commitment. So be careful. Physically, we we hear that a lot. But be careful emotionally. Young couples trying to figure out whether or not they should be married to each other typically spend way too much time together. You do not need to spend that much time together to figure out whether or not the person is godly and someone you'd like to marry. Just don't. You are not yet God's means for providing. You are not yet this person's greatest resource of spiritual help. That will be if and when you become their husband or wife. And yet couples ask like, act like their husband and wife before that point and start to meet these emotional and intimate needs for these people that they're dating. And they may not even end up married. And you have no right and no basis to do that until you've made a covenant with that person and are devoted to that person. And anything before that is folly. Watch the quality of the time together, what you do when you're together, and watch the quantity of the time together. Because the more time, the more intimacy. The more close. You want to figure out what you need to figure out without breaking each other's hearts and dishonoring the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3-7 For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness." Then the final point and question that comes from it is to see what the very last verse of our text says when it says it in this order, she became his wife and then he loved her. 
That order is so important. Number one, she became his wife. Number two, he loved her. Here's the question. Will you marry the one you love or love the one you marry? As a culture, all we talk about is the first one and not the second. We're all about, will you, we'll make sure you marry the one you love. Do you love him? Do you love her? And typically what we mean by that is a feeling and an emotion. And we describe it like a pit that we fall into. And somehow you can fall out of it. Fell in love, fell out of love. Then I fell in love again. But then I fell out of love. But then he really changed and I found myself in love with him again. But then he was terrible and there I was out of love. So all the focus is on make sure you marry the one you love. Is it? And we talk all about that. That's important. Don't marry someone you don't love. But what about loving the one you marry? That's the focus of this love story. Isaac became her husband and then he loved her for the rest of his days. He devoted himself to her. He committed himself to her. He laid down his life for her. When a couple marries and a couple divorces and, and, and say things like, you know, I fell out of love with the person. That's really not the best way to say it. That's really not the most accurate way to say it. Now, whether there were good reasons or bad reasons or a good basis or a bad basis, or what have you, the bottom line is that one person decided to stop loving another person. I made a choice. You've done this with people in your life. You've had people you loved. And for good reasons or bad reasons, you decided you weren't going to love them anymore. You weren't going to commit to them anymore, be devoted to them anymore, lay down your life for them anymore. Okay, the culmination of this love story, I love it because it doesn't focus on all of the dates leading up to their marriage. That's not the focus. The focus is, look, look at this godly man looking for a godly woman. Look at the godly people around her and the godly people around him. Look how everyone is committed to honoring God. And that's their focus. And then the, the peak of the story is when we come to the very end and it tells us that hey, Isaac married her and then he loved her and he loved her and he loved her and he loved her. So will we marry the one we love or will we love the one we marry? I pray we love the one we marry. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you have been good to us. And we thank you. Lord, I'm sure that there are, I'm sure there is so much that you're doing in the hearts of people in this church and in this community. Now we pray that you would, you would keep us pure you keep us holy. Continue to make us more like you. I pray that those who are here today who are married would honor you in their marriage. Those who are not married would, would honor you in their singleness. God, we could, we could just boil this all down to your glory and your, your namesake, your honor. So make us a people, God. Well, whatever you need to do, convict us of sin, encourage us in our righteousness, but make us a people who bring you honor and glory and who are concerned with your name and not our own. 
I pray as we take this bread and juice and are remembering the sacrifice of your son, Jesus Christ, that you would give us great joy in our hearts right now as we stand before you with glad hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.